and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Our scripture lesson today, uh, it comes uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is touching. It, woman is touching him. She is a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell her, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And then Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the gospel of Christ. Ty's the best. Um, hi, how are you? Good. Um, I have one little housekeeping thing before we jump in today. I opened the windows because I thought it felt so good outside, and I just wanted to bring the outside in. But if you guys get hot, you can get up and close them. Nobody's going to care because they're probably hot too. So, you know, y- you can. Okay. <laughs> Everyone just stared at me like, are you sure? Can we actually? It's fine. It's fine. Um, let, let's pray. <laughs> Uh, God, thank you for this morning, and I thank you for this place, and I thank you for these people. And I just pray in the next few minutes that your spirit uh, would feel as near to us as it is, as near to us as it felt in the previous just few minutes as we worshiped and as we passed peace and all the things. And I just pray that uh, that spirit that is present in the room would, um, as we pray often around here, would give us the courage to look inside ourselves that. That's something that you might want us to take a second look at. Um, I pray that you would continue to form us 
uh, into people who look more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we are um, uh, on week three of a series that we're just doing during the month of September that is called Difference. Uh, and the series is uh, one that we uh, didn't really write all by ourselves. We stole it from the Anglicans who we adore. The Church of England has put out this amazing resource and we just swiped that right up and brought it to you. So um, that's what the Difference course is. Uh, and so we've been looking at different ways to handle differences uh, in our communities and our families and our friendships and all of the places where we are, where we live and work and learn and play. Um, today, uh, we're going to talk about what it looks like to navigate disagreements as Jesus followers. Um, but in order to get that going, um, we're going to get a little bit active. Uh, judging by just me saying you can close the windows, this is not going to go well. Uh, but <laughs> we're going to get a little bit active, so uh, get ready. Um, uh, we're, we're about to undo all of the peace that we just passed and really cause some commotion in here. Um, so here's what I need you to do. If you're able, um, I'm going to read a statement. And if you agree with the statement, if you're able, stand up. And if you're not able, raise your hand as high as you can. Okay, that just says you agree. So I'm going to read a statement. If you agree, you stand up. Are you with me? Okay, here's the first statement. Uh, Coke, as in Coca-Cola, not new Coke, Coca-Cola Classic, is better than Pepsi. Oh, interesting. Huh. Okay, here's the other one. Um, you can sit down if you disagree. Ready? Uh, cats are better than dogs. Oh, <laughs> this, is, this just got really interesting. <laughs> Ty, I knew it. Um, okay, this one comes from my friend Allison. I think it's awesome. Okay, stay standing if you say caramel instead of caramel. Caramel. I can't even say it. Caramel, stand up. Carmel, thank you for raising your hand also, Graham. Carmel, <laughs> Steve's, Steve's up. Okay, okay, stand up if the beach is better than the mountains. <laughs> Alan, duh. <laughs> the only one still tan. Okay, okay, stand up if the Beatles are better than One Direction. Every single person should be standing for this one. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, stand if cargo pants are functional and stylish. <laughs> Two hands standing. I almost said no women, but we have women. This is great. Okay, okay, okay. This is a strange one. This is on a TikTok trend, but stand up if you think about the Roman Empire on a regular basis. <laughs> this is so bizarre to me. What are you guys thinking about? <laughs> this is so crazy. Okay, last one. Stand up if Steve Perry is the best voice in rock and roll. Okay, a few, a handful. Everyone my dad coerced and James. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for doing your uh, exercises. We don't stand and kneel like many churches do. We stand and argue like uh, also many churches do. So, um, so okay. So I'm curious um, what you felt inside as you looked around the room and thought, I didn't know they liked that or you know, just kind of those thinkings. Like, how many of you thought like, oh gosh, I really liked that person when we were passing the piece, um, but I didn't know they were a cat person. And now I'm not so sure <laughs> that I trust the scripture reader today, you know, or, or like, 
<laughs> or like, I used to really like that person, but now I know they like Pepsi, so I can't be their friend. Or has Tim Teague ever heard Freddie Mercury sing? Like, has he ever? <laughs> Um, now, now imagine, so these are all fun, but imagine that I put a little bit of extra weight on these questions. Imagine that I had you stand up and if you agree with abortion or capitalism or climate change or the death penalty or a specific process for the border, uh, I am guessing here um, that, the, that, the, that the air would change in the room. Like, I bet if I ask you to stand up for something bigger than just this, like, we already kind of felt it changing. I said abortion and the whole air changed, right? Like, uh, I, I would guess that if I ask you to stand for something more meaningful than soft drinks, um, then, uh, then the anxiety of the room would increase on a substantial basis. Um, I did a little research this week as to why that is, and um, Yale researchers uh, published a study in 2021, uh, and it was this really cool study. They recruited 38 participants, and they asked them to say whether they uh, agreed or disagreed with a series of statements, and they were all across the board, and they were weighted statements, like, um, uh, should marijuana be legalized, whether same-sex marriage is a civil right, and they, they asked them all of these questions, and then they paired up each of the 38 people into groups of two, and they used imaging technology to watch and record their brain activity while they had a face-to-face -face conversation about these discussions, about these heavy topics. And uh, what they found is that when two people were in agreement on something, uh, they, they, they found something in their brains that they called a calm synchronicity of activity a calm synchronicity of activity. And they said that they watched their brain focus uh, its energy into uh, the sensory areas of the brain, places like a visual system that was, that was firing in order to receive and, and, and uh, give out vocal cues uh, or physical cues to the person that they were talking to, to their partner. However, that's what happened when they agreed. But when they disagreed, uh, the sensory areas became far less active, but the brain's frontal lobe went ballistic, just went absolutely bonkers. And many other regions of the brains, or the brain, uh, ones that were uh, more involved in like higher cognitive functions, they became mobilized as the brain prepared to argue and prepared to defend and prepared to protect itself. Uh, one researcher said, our entire brain is a social processing network. It just takes a lot more brain real estate to disagree than to agree. And I read about that study this week, and I thought it was incredibly interesting. But I also was like, duh, like no offense, Yale, but duh. Like, I, I feel that. Do you? Like, I feel it in my body and in my brain when disagreement happens, even over tiny things. Like, the Beatles or whatever. Uh, um, I, I could feel it in the joke questions that we asked earlier. And I wonder if you do too, if you feel that feeling of, of what it means for your brain to disagree and how active it can become. Um, uh, while our brains are under imaging, uh, they may do similar things in disagreement. But the ways that we express this increase in activity, I think for all of us, looks a little bit different. Uh, sometimes it depends on us, sometimes it depends on the person we're disagreeing with, and sometimes it depends just on uh, the disagreement. Some of us, when we disagree, have a tendency to withdraw in order to not rock the boat because our brains feel better to agree than disagree, right? 
Um, plenty of us, uh, maybe we are not so much withdrawing, uh, but we charge toward the disagreement or charge toward the person or the group, uh, seeing only the rift between us, not really the person that we're actually uh, disagreeing with. And, and while science tells us that these responses are human and natural, and I think they are, uh, they also don't tend to be the thing in us that solves anything. In fact, these natural tendencies, I think, are the thing in us that, that keeps us stuck. They keep us stuck where we are, frustrated or withdrawn, and I think that Jesus has something to say about this. Uh, Jesus, he uh, uses conflict often uh, to talk about what we're supposed to do in it. And the scripture that Ty read to us is, is, is no exception to that. Um, we find Jesus at the home uh, of uh, a guy named Simon. This is not Simon Peter that we talk a lot about. This is Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee is a religious leader, like a respected uh, religious leader. Uh, people are talking about Jesus at this point in Jesus's ministry and curiosity is rising all over the region. Uh, so much so that Simon is so curious that he invites Jesus over to dinner and he wants to spend time with him. And then later, uh, a woman in the story is so curious that she interrupts that gathering. And when she does, when she interrupts, conflict happens. Uh, on one level, the disagreement between Simon and the woman uh, is a disagreement about appropriate or acceptable behavior. Like, is it okay to interrupt someone? Or there, I think there's something about the role of gender here, the role of power here. Uh, she lets her hair down. I don't have time to go into it, but it's an unacceptable behavior. And then she wastes what is probably very expensive perfume. And so on the surface, this is kind of what the conflict seems like it is. But I think that there's something happening at a deeper level, and that's the thing that Jesus uh, wades into. You notice he doesn't say anything about her hair or things like that. He wades into the deeper level of conflict. And I think that the deeper level of conflict here is actually about God's approval and about his character, who he is and what he's okay with. Uh, Simon, he had no imagination for a God who would collude with sinners. We hear it in his thoughts, right? But the woman, she has no imagination for the Jesus who would not welcome her exactly how she is. Uh, in the story, Jesus, he responds to Simon's thoughts. That part, every time I read it, freaks me out. You know, it's like I believe that God can like read my mind and then I read it and I was like, oh no, you can read my mind. You know, like that, that's kind of how it reads that Simon thinks this and Jesus is like, uh, I'd like to talk about what you're thinking. You know, and so only my phone can do that. Um, <laughs> But in this story, Jesus, he responds to Simon's thoughts and, 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 and he responds to his thoughts with a story about two men and a banker. And it's like the most classic Jesus move ever, right? Like his go-to response in a disagreement uh, or, or in a teaching is to tell a story. And that's what he does. And I think it's worth some curiosity here about why he does that. Like, why does Jesus always tell stories instead of arguing theology or making position statements? He re responds every time someone tries to put him on the spot, he responds with story. I think it's because Jesus uh, has this overall seeking, this constant seeking to encounter the humanity behind whatever question he's being asked or encounter the humanity behind whatever disagreement he sees or issue or label that someone wears. And so Jesus, he chooses to engage Simon's thoughts. He brings them out into the open. 
Uh, my therapist says very often, secrets keep us stuck and sick. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to keep you stuck and stick. I'm going to bring it out into the open. And then with the brilliance of storytelling, Jesus invites Simon uh, to take a second look at this woman who's kneeling down in his home. Uh, Jesus invites him to see what Simon had missed before. He invites him to see her dignity, and he invites him to see her worship. And I think that the reason Jesus, uh, we see Jesus doing things like this all the time is because he's inviting uh, the curious, uh, he's inviting curiosity, and he's inviting his followers then and now to see something beyond conflict and something beyond disagreement. Uh, he's inviting us instead to, to risk seeing the dignity of the person who sits on the other side of what we disagree with, or on the other side of the conflict, to commit time and energy to them rather than disengaging from them or raging at them or raging in our car on the way home, personal story, um, on a regular basis. Um, and, and, and so I think that's why he does this. Um, there's a theologian that I love named Miroslav Volf. You want to say that name twice? Um, he says this, Mirosov Vlof. He says, Christ's indwelling presence has freed us from exclusive orientation toward ourselves and opened us up into two directions, toward God to receive the good things in faith and toward our neighbor to pass them on in love. He's opened us up from only seeing ourselves in two directions, to see God and what he has to offer and toward our neighbor to pass all that we've received from God on in love. Uh, each week in this series, we've watched a video um, story of someone who is living out the things that we've talked about or asking the questions that uh, we've talked about. And we're going to watch a video this morning that, that comes to us um, from across the, the world again. Next week, we're coming back very close to home, which I'm excited about. But I, I, I love the story. Um, uh, this uh, video is going to come from a lady named Miriam who lives in London, but her story goes much wider than that. So hit it, Emily. Yeah, that was. <laughs> it felt so wrong coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I was like, am I just being South London? Or was, was that right? My name's Mariam, and the story I'm about to tell you is about the Egyptian Revolution and how politics divided my family. My parents moved from Egypt uh, in their 20s, it was around the 1970s. Egypt was a newly independent country and the economy was uh, in tatters and prospects were pretty low for them. As immigrants, and particularly as Copts, my parents uh, had a very particular form of patriotism. Uh, it's common that when you move away from your homeland, you feel even more attached to where you came from. Egypt was this magical, incredible land. Um, there was just this deep nostalgia um, for this special place that they wanted us to be connected to as well. After university, I went for the first time on my own to the south of Egypt. This was uh, rural Egypt where uh, there's high levels of uh, extreme poverty. Um, it was a side to Egypt that I'd never seen before. I began to really see more and more what social injustice looked like. It was uh, a continued kind of unraveling of what I knew to be uh, the norm of life. 
there were a lot of questions uh, that began to arise in me of reality. Why was this happening and where was God in the middle of it? significant breaking news in Egypt at this hour. The office of the presidency there has just announced that President Hosni Mubarak has stepped down. That was the demand for weeks now from anti-government protesters. In 2011, um, what had become known as the Arab Spring kicked off. Uh, my sister was living in Egypt at the time. Uh, we had our whole family in Egypt at the time, aunts, uncles, cousins. Quite quickly it became clear that uh, me and my parents were at polar opposites uh, of where we stood on uh, the good nature of, uh, of this particular revolution. The way that my parents saw it was that safety and security and stability for the country was number one. For me though, I'd come to understand that the levels of frustration and the levels of anger um, and the levels of really just being done with the current status quo was also what led people to those streets. I think one of the hardest things in us being on polar opposites was that what they saw was my position was that I also didn't put my family right at the heart of that, that I perhaps didn't care as much about their safety and security and their future, which just wasn't true. And the tension in the house was tangible. Uh, it was impossible to have discussions where we could see each other's perspectives because we just came uh, from opposite ends uh, of views, but also everybody was charged emotionally. So often uh, it would just go into silence. And it wasn't a silence that was uh, trying to appease or trying to uh, fix the conflict, but it was a silence that actually just became more distance. whole night I was kind of grappling with um, these tensions that were living in me but more than anything I could just see over and over again the faces, faces of brokenness, of poverty and I couldn't get rid of this feeling that they were coming to the surface. The next day uh, I remember being on this particular hilltop in Cornwall and uh, it was a bit of a grey, typical grey kind of cloudy day and I stood on the top of this hilltop and everything was sort of sitting right at the top of my chest. Uh, and I just remember shouting into the clouds uh, for the first time and just saying, God, where have you been in the midst of all of this? I think what's always surprising about God's still small voice is the fear that I carried for so long of asking those questions, the fire and brimstone that uh, if we doubt uh, will be struck down, I was sort of living somewhere in the back of my head. And yet what I experienced on that hilltop and, and what I've experienced since every time I've asked those questions has been this incredible grace and mercy. Um, and just knowing that those are the times where God is so present, where we finally lay it bare. Um, and say what's actually deep in our hearts. And it really was from that moment uh, that I began to feel more comfortable in asking those big questions.
So for me, from from that point, uh, you know, things never change immediately. Uh, but it was certainly the beginning of a journey of learning to come to conversation and to come to difference um, with curiosity and to be less afraid of those questions in those spaces. To know that uh, if I was to walk in and have a difference of opinion, it doesn't have to end in a complete breaking of relationship, but that's, there is something in between uh, that we can grapple with. And so for me, it was learning to put aside my fears, um, to learn that God was in the midst of that, and to be able to actually come with questions into those spaces, particularly thinking of the differences that me and my mum might have politically or otherwise, to really come into those spaces and to ask questions, to get to know her story better, to get to know where she's coming from. In the silence, we kept so much unsaid uh, that it felt like the gap widened and yet when we actually questioned each other and came into relationship with one another uh, it wasn't it was actually just a case of coming closer to each other each other's humanity <laughs> Uh, I've been looking forward to that video since I knew we were doing this series uh, because I think it is a uh, really good thing for us to watch uh, a political climate that isn't our own heat up and impact families and people. Uh, it's easy uh, for me and I hope for you to empathize uh, with Miriam and her parents as they struggle for intimacy when they disagree about something that is incredibly important to all of them. Uh, I think a lot of us know this on a really personal level as, as well. I think many of us in the room have had meals ruined over political disagreements or relationships altered or maybe ended over things like this. I think this is something we can relate to. Uh, I think in our, our scripture lesson and in Miriam's story, uh, they both teach us that, that, that Jesus is not threatened by our divergent views. He just isn't. He, he isn't afraid of conflict arising. Uh, the thing about Jesus is he just practices it differently than we do. Uh, Jesus uh, does something that I think uh, I, it's like all week long. I've been like oh, so convicted by this. But Jesus names the conflict. He names it. He says it's there. He acknowledges that it's in the room uh, with everyone. And then with mercy, he expresses his view in a story first. In this human story, uh, very, very first, rather than an argument. And I think it's really important for us to see that um, being a reconciler, what we've talked about the last few weeks and we talk about so often around here, being a reconciler in the world, it's not about eradicating or ignoring voices that are different than us. That is a, a horrible idea. It's not about never having an opinion or a preference or a feeling. Instead, it's about finding ways of hearing another person, a person we agree with, but also one that we disagree with, a person like us, but very much people who are different than us. In the things uh, that we have in common and in the places where we differ or disagree in big and huge and enormous ways. Uh, we keep talking about these three habits each week. Emily, I think we have a slide for him. Uh, and, and, and we keep talking about them every single week because like Chris said last week, uh, repetition matters. 
Uh, repetition forms us in our, in our souls and in our brains. And at this church, we try to be as careful as we possibly can uh, to repeat things of value and things of substance, to um, form in you the ways of Jesus, not to scare you to death. Um, and so in the name of repeating something good, I want to talk about these three habits uh, yet again. And they're this, um, being curious, being present, and reimagining. Uh, as we engage in disagreements, I think that there is um, incredible value in being curious, in asking questions and listening to uh, the stories behind someone's belief or be behind their experience um, uh, or behind their opinion. And as we listen, I think uh, we learn to be present to, to what they're saying. That's an incredibly important piece, not to be curious and then check out, but be curious and then to be present, not to minimize the person we're disagreeing with by powering up over them and minimizing them or uh, by withdrawing and minimizing our own selves. Neither one of those things are true presence. Uh, we, we are present by asking uh, questions and listening to stories and as, as we listen, we learn to encounter each other with authenticity and confidence as we attempt to see the world through the eyes of another person. Uh, presence reminds us that the goal isn't to agree. The goal is to see and be seen. Uh, and then we do all of this with the hope of reimagining. We uh, uh, believe in the power of the Holy Spirit around here. And we think that one of the superpowers that the Holy Spirit offers to the people of God and builds in his people is the ability to find hope and opportunity in the places where we long to see change. Uh, I want to give you an example. Um, about a decade ago, I gave one of my first sermons uh, I, ever in all of time. I think it was my very first one, and I gave it at the Maryville Vineyard. I would call it absolutely incredible, but I don't remember what I talked about. So uh, you can just imagine for yourself. We're recreating history, so it was great, you know. Um, and after it, I went to the back of the room because I thought that's what preachers did. And I went to the back of the room, and this man comes, and he, like, beelines toward me. And, and I'm like, this man, he's probably going to say thank you and ask me to baptize him. Like, I had no other imagination uh, for anything else. What happened instead is he makes a beeline toward me and he, and he catches me and he says, thank you for that sermon. I didn't relate to any of it. And I was like, well, great. And then his guns blazed. That wasn't enough. The next two or three sentences, he worked in the following additional statements. One, he called Fox News the liberal media. This was a decade ago. This is like pre-Newsmax. So Fox News, the liberal media. And then he said, the gays, the Democrats, and the vegetarians are destroying our country. I'm three sentences in with this guy, and I know that my sermon didn't work. Uh, uh, Fox News Liberal, and, and all of these things are, are destroying the world. And listen, I want to come clean to you. What I really wanted to do is respond and tell him that I was a lesbian, Democrat, ve vegetarian lady preacher. Um, <laughs> but I didn't, because I'm only one of those. You can guess which one. Um, <laughs> but I did something else instead, and that is I listened. Now hear me, this room is filled with people who knew me before I knew myself. Like in this room are people that I, I have no ability to pretend that I'm holier than I actually am because they will meet me in the back and say, you lied, okay? My mom is in this room, so I cannot pretend. The reason I listened, that is not a normal go-to for me. The reason that I listened was because I had just given a sermon and I felt a little holy or like the pressure to feel a little holy. And so I'm just listening to this person. But the longer I listened, what happened was the more human he became. He became a person. 
And the more curious I got about what led him to the place uh, to believe the things that he was talking about. And, and our conversation ended with me, uh, with him showing me pictures of his dogs and both of us in tears talking about how the sermon had actually meant a little something to him. And then over time, we became the most unlikely friends. And then uh, months later, he helped us plant this church. And for years, he served here faithfully. And uh, many, many weeks, he would wait for me by the, those back doors. And he would wait for me to come back. And then he would tell me every single thing he disagreed with about my sermon. And we'd hash it out. And many, many weeks, he would wait back by those doors. And I would avoid him like the plague and go out this way. <laughs> those both happened, honestly. Um, uh, Sometimes when I introduce passing the peace, I say that I think it's incredibly important that we literally cross an aisle and shake hands with someone who we disagree with everything, maybe outside of this room. But in this room, we can agree on peace. And the reason I started saying that is because of him. <laughs> because we learned how to shake hands. And we learned how to look each other in the eye. I, I, I disagree. To this day, I disagree with him on so many things. Uh, almost everything we've ever talked about. But you know what we agree on? Peace. We agree on peace. Here's the truth. Eventually, our disagreements became too many for him to stay uh, at Springburg. But what's wild is we stayed friends. I saw him one week ago. Uh, I, I like seeing him. We laugh, we talk, we still disagree. But we found a way to keep agreeing on peace and keep agreeing on laughter and continuing to agree that his dog is so cute in a sweater. Disagreements, they can be complex and they can be hard. But the truth is often it isn't our disagreement that prevents us from being in relationship with someone. It's our instinct to power up in order to conquer them or to draw back and withdraw at the expense of ourselves. That is what costs us the relationship. While we cannot force another person to act the way that we wish they would, uh, we do have the power and the authority to choose how we act how we respond, how we engage. I want to say that again. I put it in all caps, so I guess I should say it twice. We do not have the power to force another person to act the way we wish they would, but we do have the power to control our own actions and to choose how we respond. And together, I think these three habits help us to see a new path forward, to show us um, that we are committed uh, to the other person in spite of conflict. These, these habits, they help us to, to nurture our relationships and, and to build trust with others, not to avoid disagreements with them, but in order to know what to do when they happen. Because they will happen. The truth uh, uh, is that the path of our lives will bring us into conflict and disagreement with people. It will happen. Spoiler. This is your spoiler alert for the holidays. It's going to happen, right? It, it, it will happen. We will disagree, but we have the opportunity in those disagreements for curiosity and for presence and to reimagine our response. 
So here's what I want to do uh, for the next few minutes. We have a practice here that we do every week, and we call it Selah, and it's just a, a quiet pause. It's a word we stole from the Psalms, um, and, and we just practice it every week, and it's just an attempt to not move on too quickly from anything that's happened in this room and this morning. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask you, as you like think about Miriam's story and watch Miriam's story, uh, would you allow that to bring to your attention someone that you disagree with? or someone that you are currently in conflict with. If your mind right now is like, oh, it's no one, don't trust that instinct. <laughs> you are in conflict with someone, okay? Here, maybe a better way to think about it is, uh, is to say this. Think back to the story of Simon the Pharisee and ask God to bring any conflicts or disagreements to your mind that you're afraid to address or be open about. Okay, you got one? No one does. Oh, wait. Oh, now you're nodding, okay. You got one. Okay, so in the next few minutes, um, here's what I want to do. I just want to ask God for his presence uh, to be part of this room as we think about those conflicts. And we're just going to leave room for the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does, which is comfort and convict. <laughs> so we'll do that. Um, to help us see where we're struggling with curiosity or we're struggling with presence or we're struggling for how to reimagine a relationship or a disagreement in a way that, that forms a path to move forward. Uh, so I'm just going to pray and bless it, and then I'll get out of the way and, and give you time to think. So, uh, God, would you fill us with your spirit? And would you allow us to see uh, with a clear imagination the places of conflict and disagreement that are impacting our relationships currently? Uh, would you give us the courage to be present and would you allow us to see the conflict or the disagreement as it actually is? Not the way we've avoided or not the way we've made it more dramatic than it is, but as it actually is. And as we look and as we see, would you fill us with your spirit and your creativity and your own imagination, allowing us to see a new and reimagined way forward? One with dignity that doesn't minimize or villainize the other person or the group, but at the same time doesn't minimize or diminish us in any way. So help us be curious about other stories. Help us to listen more often than we speak or as often as we speak. Give us the courage to be present, engaging our whole and unique selves. And would you inspire us to reimagine what's possible, finding hope by glimpsing you at work. In your name we pray, amen.